I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and I'm here today with Andy Johnson. How are you doing, Andy? Garrett, I'm doing wonderful. I'm ready. Uh, by the time everybody will be listening to this, it'll be past Christmas, but you know, just the holiday season, ready for a laid back week next week. And um, yeah, excited to talk about events. That's a, a big thing for 2022. It was a big part of our 2021 and uh, also excited to talk about a couple courses uh, today. Yeah, we are devoting this episode to events. If you have no interest whatsoever in fried egg events, maybe this isn't the episode for you. But but we are talking about Lasonia. So we, you know, we are if you're also interested talking in about learning, some cool uh, courses. Talk about uh, Lasonia. Um, you know, we are doing that. So there, you know, may just fast forward. There's some extra content. I'll put some <laughs> timestamps in in this uh, description, but. I think a lot of people would be interested in fried egg events. I mean, they're they're really fun. But uh, just telling you that that is the subject of our discussion for the next, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. And then we're going to have some clips from past episodes about courses. And you and I are also going to discuss Lasonia, which actually we haven't done on the podcast before, even though it's a, a very important course to you and to the fried egg. and The OG uh, fried egg event course. Yeah, absolutely. The steam shovel. But um, first of all, the reason we're doing this episode now is that signups are opening for the first batch of Friday events on Monday, January 3rd. The events that are going to be available to sign up for are the King Tide at Charleston Muni in Charleston, South Carolina. That's on April 2nd. There's uh, signups for the Boomerang at Soul Park in Ojai, California. That's going to be on April 23rd. The Steam Shovel at Lasonia Links in Wisconsin, that is going to be May 14th. Uh, the Coup de Gras at the Dunes Club in Michigan, that'll be May 26th. We also have an add-on for that uh, the day before for anybody that's playing in it at Lost Dunes. You know, if you you can play Tom Doak's course the day before and, uh, and then also play uh, Dunes Club the next day. This is great. That's news to me. Mm -hmm. um, and then we will also have a sign up for The Banker at Dornick Hills in Ardmore, Oklahoma. I'm not Perry sure that Maxwell's one's going up. Course. Is that one not going up? I don't think that one's going up. I okay. thought I thought you were going to... I think that one's in the next batch. So, <laughs> But I'm All excited right. about but, but that one. That one is going to be coming up at some point. Uh, we'll, we'll figure it. We'll figure it out, everybody. In any case, there's going to be a round of sign ups for fried egg events and where can people sign up for an event or check out information for an event if they're interested in it, Andy? It, it's on our website, which you know I think is something that we're we're looking at overhauling in uh, in the next year. Uh, but we you have to go uh, if you go to thefriedegg.com, There's a little uh, sidebar that says browse topics. Click there, and there's an event tab. So it's all under the fried egg events. I'm sure if you Google the fried egg events it would just pull up that seems to be like how people do things now which uh is easy enough um so it, there you'll see the full calendar that's been announced uh to date we have a few extras that are going to come come in um i think we're, we we will be in philadelphia in uh late august uh and then you know we have a a couple other events that should pop up um in the back half of the year so expect to see some more events on there. And yeah, it's uh, we're really excited about these. We we were really thrilled with uh, how they've gone over time. Obviously, COVID was uh, a challenging situation, but um, you know, we last year they went swimmingly, and uh, we've had extremely good luck with weather. Um, so it's been it's been really fun. It's been great to get out and meet people. Um, and you know, one of the things that 
when we started these uh, back in 2019, it would have been, uh, you know, we didn't really know what to expect. I, it was been something I'd been, you know, ruminating on and, you know, uh, for a couple of years and had been a part of uh, Zach Blair's events um, that he was the ringer that he had done. And, um, you know, I think from our standpoint, uh, we really love our community of, uh, of people and you, the listeners, readers, and this this is a what we kind of view this as is an excellent opportunity for people with that share a real common interest in 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 our complete golf nuts like golf tragics uh love seeing new and different and interesting golf courses a way for them to get together you know full disclosure we could be doing things that would be better for our bottom line uh, than these, they 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 take a lot of time and energy, and what we want to do is provide them at the lowest possible cost we can, so that they are achievable and accessible for all types of golfers. So you can look at it and say, "Hey, I I can go see a really neat course that I wouldn't be able to otherwise with the fried egg." Or you know, and then also on the public side, you know, uh, in the first three events of the year are at public courses. We we want to celebrate and really give these public courses that provide unbelievable architecture at a you know affordable rates a lot of publicity and and host these events and you know host them in the case of Lostonia, we're gonna have that one every year and and likely we'll have the Soul Park event every year. And uh, we're really excited about the Charleston event. Uh, I mean, a- early April in Charleston is about the best time of year to be there. And and you know these these facilities that have that do such a are such wonderful stewards of uh, both architecture and affordable golf. We want to celebrate those with our, with our events out there. So that's kind of like why we started doing fried egg events. And you know it's something that we will continue to do. I think you know our aim is to be around twelve events. Uh, obviously. We have a lot of other editorial um, things between the Shotgun Start three times a week, the Fried Egg podcast, written articles, and and major championship weeks with daily newsletters and such like that. That we, you know, is going to prohibit us from ever doing fifty events or whatever. We, we are not an events company, yes. really. Uh, this is this is one of the things we do. But you know what we what we want to do, and one of the neatest things that I've seen and experienced with the events is you see these like complete strangers and you know they meet at the beginning of the day and and you come back in from 18 holes and it's lunch and you see these people you walk in the room and it, and it's like everybody's best, been best friends for years um and that's i think kind of the when we did the first steve shovel i walked away like i saw people you know exchanging numbers and and all of a sudden these new friends were made new golf friends and you know these are people that I've seen some that play together in events the next year. And mm-hmm. that, that's that been the, one of the most rewarding things that these events have um, really brought out is is that, you know, people are becoming good golf buddies from the events. And, and I think it's cool. You can come, obviously, with friends, uh, but you can also come solo. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it that's the thing. You're going to get paired up with somebody that loves golf um, probably as much, if not more, than you. All right, so you've given a, a good sense of why we hold the events, how they started, all that kind of stuff. Just to give uh, people an idea of where we're going with this episode, one, we wanted to let you know about some of the events that we're holding and the courses that we're holding them at. And so later in the episode, we'll talk about Lasonia and we'll play some clips from episodes that we've done on Charleston Muni, on Soul Park, maybe on Dornickills. And so that's where we're ultimately going with the episode. But first, we wanted to talk about frequently asked questions about the events, because we get a lot of the same questions over and over again, understandable questions about fried egg events. And so one you know, fundamental question is, what's the basic format of a fried egg event? What does the day look like? Absolutely. So all of our events to date are 36 holes. The idea behind that is that we... I always like playing a course and then I like seeing it again because you play it and you sometimes figure something out and you say, God, I wish I got a chance to play it again. But 36 holes of your own ball is pretty taxing. Um, so what we do is it's it's like a Muirfield day. So it is 
18 holes of best ball with your partner in the morning. We have a gross and a handicapped division. I you you you're automatically entered into both. Um, so you it starts at say around eight o'clock, depending on daylight, maintenance crews, how you know what time we want to get going. But it starts around eight o'clock. 18 holes of best ball in the morning. We have breakfast set up, you know, just grab and go breakfast sandwiches, uh, and you get your tea gift then, and uh, and then. We come back in after 18 holes of best ball with a, it's a shotgun start and everybody has lunch. And then we go back out in the afternoon for 18 holes of alternate shot. This is really fun. Uh, one of the things that we do that I think is unique is that uh, every everybody plays in eightsomes and tensomes. Um, so there's four or five balls and it's just a great way to meet a lot of people. And I think alternate shot is is a daunting uh, format if you've never played it, but the more you play it, you realize it's probably the most fun and the most team uh, format of golf. It you know it really makes you work with your partner, and I think like I always say this before events, like the best thing that you know the best moment in your alternate shot life is when you start to realize like I should I like you your mentality shifts away from being sorry for your partner. And it shifts to like, oh, thank God, I just don't have to hit that next one, you know. <laughs> yeah, like you and, just and, like and say you, to your partner at the beginning of it, let's not apologize <laughs> to each other. Yeah. about the positions that we're going to put each other in because it's going to come back around at some point. This is just golf; it's what happens. Don't feel sorry. I think like that's like one of the funny things is like people always apologize for golf shots. Um, what it, it happens to us all. Like, you know, like why are you apologizing <laughs> if you tried? Like the only time that anybody could ever be mad if you like just got up and just don't try. Like, yeah, but everybody right. always is trying. So, so anyways, then it's that um, after the alternate shot, we have um, hors d'oeuvres. You know, typically we buy a round or two of drinks for for the group, um, and then everything else is kind of on your own. And then uh, we have a shootout, and who gets into the shootout are net winners of of alternate shot and the and the best ball and then low gross winners of the alternate shot and the best ball and then some wild card teams which are basically the you know total based off of totals so low gross low net totals the next through uh group and it's usually about eight to ten teams and we go out and do a four hole shootout uh typically depending on light it might be a you know a, a single elimination, so it's a it, it's kind of a, a flexible thing uh, based off of a um, you know the light and the constraints of the day. So the uh, the shootout's really fun. Usually, you know, most people stick around and come out and watch, um, and it, it, that's an alternate shot um, format. And then the winners get you know we do prizes typically we've done golf bags and uh custom betonardi putters which are kind of one of two putters they're really neat they have the event logos on them and um and we have heavy hors d'oeuvres uh and 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 people stick around so uh for a little while uh mondays monday events that at private clubs a little bit shorter of a hang than the saturday events yeah but there's usually a a, a really fun little scene afterwards where people get to talk and circulate and make some new friends and that's always been my favorite part of of the day you know after the golf is done and people are just relaxing and having a few drinks so all right so when somebody goes to a friday event they get the golf they get 36 holes of golf they get this shootout they get a tea gift they get a tea gift and that ranges from you know be dratty polos to pullovers some events we do you know zr stuff it's something different every time yeah it's it's all event specific but, um, you know, we name all the events. I think that's a, one thing that, you know, in all the names are based off of like something that either happened to the course, something like local. So, for example, like the King Tide was a, you know, King Tides used to wreck Charleston Muni. It, it would cause the place to flood. And it's a it, it's a, you know, aspect of the low country. Um, and every time there was a king tide, the, the course would flood. So we're, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. So that we're calling the event, the king tide, um, the steam shovel, for example, at, uh, at, um, at Lawsonia is, is based on the tool, the equipment that was used to build the course in 1930. This, this, this course is just, you know, out of this world, bold, huge 
hazards and green complexes that were built with this steam shovel that is pretty remarkable given the year that it was built. And for the boomerang, for example, that's the there's a boomerang green at um at uh at at Soul Park. Soul Park. And and then the banker is called the banker because Perry Maxwell, when he built that golf course, was a banker in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Obvious enough. Yeah. yeah. All right. So um, you addressed this briefly earlier, but I want to reinforce it because it is a really common question that we get. Can I come as a single? And also sometimes what's behind that question is, would it be weird if I come as a single? Will I feel out of place? And, and will it just be kind of an odd day socially? if I come as a single. And and I think the obvious answer to that question, having been to these events, is no. But maybe you can talk about that a little bit. What's it like to come as a solo person to these events? Yeah, I, I think this is... Uh, I, I highly encourage it. I think this is a great way to do it. I Obviously, you know, playing with your friends are, is great too. But um, I always think that the singles get the most out of it because they meet the most people, right? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, you meet all these people that you might not know that lived in your golf city or near abouts that, that, um, share this common interest. So I, I highly encourage singles. Also a big question that I get is about skill level. Like I'm a 15, I'm a 22. Is that going to ruin the day? No, absolutely not. <laughs> like this is like, we're very, you know, I think the, the competition's been described the best as like. You know, everybody cares just about just enough, and nobody cares too much, and that's like the balance we go for. And I think we've achieved is where you have these people where you know people are trying; they're trying their hardest, but nobody's like throwing clubs over you yeah. know shots. You, and, you shouldn't be really grinding. <laughs> yeah, at nobody, an event like this. Like, like yeah, <laughs> like exactly. It's not, it's not that serious. I mean. Yeah, people, as you say, people try their best. You're trying to hit good golf shots, but you're not beating yourself up if you're not playing well. I mean, listen, like in our company, you know, Andy is a really good player. Will is a really good player. These are low handicap, scratch or better players. I am more like a 10 handicap. I've gone to several of these events. I've never felt like I'm uncomfortable with uh, with being there. I've played with people who are more like 20 to 25 handicaps at these events. Again, we use a handicap system, so it kind of evens out. This is the magic of golf and its handicap system that you can play on an even playing field with uh, people of different skill levels. But in terms of just the competitive atmosphere, if you're not a competitive golfer, this is not an uncomfortable environment. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, I think that's pretty much all of the questions that we wanted to address i I mean are there any other faqs uh that's that's it you know at some of these you know depending on our time constrictions and what's going on beforehand a lot of them will do you know a get together the night before um and uh some of these will will this year we'll have some golf uh before or after um and we'll kind of do that as a depending on how many spots we have at different places in the area, uh, it will be kind of a lottery system based off of people that are attending the event. Yeah. And and one thing that we haven't really mentioned specifically so far is the criteria that we use to choose courses. That's a good call. Yeah. So wh- why do we choose the courses that we choose for these events? These are places that I go see. Um, they are not based off of a list. They are not based off of where we think we'll get the most people to sign up. These are places that we go to that I find to be extraordinarily fun golf courses to play. They are the courses, you know, that aren't the high, they don't have to be, some are very high in in rankings, but they're places that we feel like are, are very unique golf courses that expose you to some sort of architecture that you need to see. And, and, provide a a different experience than your status quo golf club so you know if you look down our, our list of courses you know charleston muni gives you a, a great example of of template hole golf you know for people that haven't played a rainer or or, or or mcdonald this is a golf course you can go and see how some of these templates work you know the boomerang at soul park is a great you know gil hans uh golf course that's in a idyllic setting it's just a wonderful place that you want to spend time at like I, I just can't think of many courses that i just when i'm out there in the afternoon i just 
I just look and bask and like you're sitting in this little mountain canyon playing just this this beautiful in this beautiful setting on a on a really fun golf course. You know, the steam shovel, that's that architecture you have to see to believe. Like, you know, photos don't do it justice. Like until you see that first green and the cliff off the left of it that's like 25 feet that was man-made, you're just like, wow, unbelievable. Obviously the Dunes Club, that's where the Kaiser, you know, the whole idea of abandoned dunes started and and with the lost dunes add-on you have a tom doak design that's that's really neat um uh dornick hills where perry maxwell's career started a really important golf course in golf course history and like golf course architecture history and a very very good and very unique piece of ground like it, it, something that you wouldn't expect in in oklahoma and fr- um, freshly restored as fresh, well. Yeah, and, and freshly restored. Like one of the biggest, uh, I think like one of the most important restorations, uh, you know, that has happened in, in recent years is that golf course. Um, getting it back from, you know, where it was a far, far cry from what its original design was. Um, obviously, Yale, we have those two days set up. Uh, I don't think we need to talk that much about it. This is a, a Seth Rayner, CB McDonald design. Um, was one of the the great golf courses. Is one of the great golf courses in the world, and it's a great chance to see it before the uh, restoration goes that happens. And then you'll have a frame of reference of where it was and and what it became uh, with the Gil Hans working there. Meadowbrook. Uh, that is one of the most fun golf courses. This is a repeat from last year. We're going back there just because the golf course is so fun. Andy Staples um, renovated this, what was a Willie Park and had a lot of like a long history of design changes, but uh, renovated it in Willie Park's kind of style. And this golf course, I mean, there's so many fun shots out there. So many uh, bowls and neat greens. And, and that is... That's one of the most fun places to play golf in America. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, totally delightful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, as you're saying, even if you haven't heard of a course that we're holding an event at, check it out a little bit. Look into its architectural history, and you'll find something special about it. Yeah. We're not just holding these events at places where we think we're going to make a lot of money. We're not just going for name recognition. These are special places with designs that are worthy of attention and, and worthy of some study. Yeah, and and like um the the final two that we have on the calendar right now, Essex uh, County Club is the first of the the sixth member of the USGA, the first outside of the five founding members. Huge tons of history. Also, a place that Donald Ross lived. Um, really incredible golf course. This yeah. is this, this is one of those courses that Ross really worked on a lot. You know, Pinehurst Number Two gets a lot of attention for how much Ross was there and and made changes and made that course kind of his baby. Essex County is the other course that's like that. And I think like the the most well-known Ross courses are the championship courses and Seminole, right? This is I would say probably the most fun Donald Ross course that I've played. Wow. Um the uh and then Prairie Dunes which I think you know is a place that I've gone back to every single year that I've been running this business since I went to it which was, I think the first year I was there was 2017 or 2018. Okay. Why don't we talk about Lasonia now? Well, one other thing. We, I, you know, we do have another event that's going to come up. Uh, it will be announced, may be announced by the time this podcast comes out uh, shortly after. We are doing a collaborative event with No Laying Up, um, and that will be in uh, at a golf course that was recently on their tourist sauce, uh, which is their YouTube travel series, um, uh, in Michigan. So that it will be a Saturday event. And, uh, I'm really excited about that. That should be a really fun one also. And that, that, that will be in early June. And speaking of collaborations, we, I don't think we mentioned that oh, the we for are the ladies. teaming up with for the ladies at, uh, Charleston Muni. Uh, this was a recent development that we decided to to partner with for the ladies, Abby Liebenthal's organization that's doing great work getting women involved in golf. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's a they have a great organization, and we I think we 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 really respect and and um you know just I think what they do and, and with uh with getting women into golf, and also I think they have also have a you know a lot of women that are super into golf that play and uh and we're excited to partner up with them there all right Lasonia 
maybe we should start by talking about Lankford and Moreau, the designers, the original designers of Lasonia Lynx. Not everybody knows about Langford and Moreau. Certainly they've become more visible among Golden Age architects over the past few years because of the work that you've done in, in large part, I think. A lot of other people too. Of course, yeah. But you've been researching Langford and Moreau and thinking about Langford and Moreau for a few years now. Give people the rundown of who these architects are and what their style was. Yeah, they, mo- they worked mostly in the Midwest. Um they kind of um, came to the height of their powers, and you'd really wonder what would have happened if the Great Depression didn't happen, because where when they were hitting their stride was really the late Golden Age, and they're an evolution of like you know the goal. This is one of the things that was the saddest thing with you know what happened to golf architecture is you had the Great Depression and then World War II, which kind of halted the evolution of architecture in America and with for golf and probably building architecture as well. But these architects are, I think if you put them on a tree, they kind of evolved from Rayner and McDonald. It, it's, uh, you know, if I've seen some Langford stuff before he worked with Moreau and it's pretty subdued. And then the, the pair, when they got together, I think I, I, you know, and I'm not a historian, so I'm not always the best with little details, but Moreau was the the guy that built the really wild stuff. And Lawsonia is, I would say, probably the best kept. Um, that and Culver are the two best kept uh, Langford Moreaus in terms of like, if you want to go see what their architecture was about, that's where you go see. So you're going to see really big, bold features. They they worked on a lot of great land. Lasonia is is a terrific piece of ground. But what they did was they built, um, which is different than, say, a Perry Maxwell. And, and they might have had beef. I kind of think the Perry <laughs> Maxwell and Langford Moreau. Perry, like, Perry Maxwell really, might have subtweeted them a couple of times. Oh, totally did. It's actually on on his, t- on his like, the, the statue that leads up to his gravesite at Dornick Hills. <laughs> is like, the quote that he's subtweeting Um um, Langford Moreau, and th- this is a not this is not your Alistair Mer- McKenzie uh, Maxwell like find it in the ground. This was Golden Age maximalism, and I think Golden Age maximalism is kind of what the architecture we have today, where they let the natural land provide most of the theatrics, and but then they built features at the green and at, at bunkers, and these are big big features like. These are features that, like, you just are like, wow, I can't believe they built that in 1930. Um, for example, the seventh hole is this famous par three at Lawsonia. It's called the boxcar hole. It is a, you know, hit it or else type par three. It's, it's about a 160 yard shot. And the green is built allegedly on top of a, a boxcar that you would see like a freight train car. And it's just like the, a vertical wall in front of the green that's about 20 feet up, it, it, you know, just to give you an idea. And it's kind of banked into this slope. Uh, this, uh, it, so it's just, um, Lawsonia is an amazing place. Uh, it, it is a, it's an important place uh, for me. It's, it's one of the, you know, if you said in the Midwest, like best value, uh, in terms of what you get architecturally and, uh, for the cost, Lawsonia is at the top of any place in probably the entire country. I think it is a it it you could make a very good argument that it's the best golf course in all of Wisconsin. And before somebody says, "Oh, well, what about Milwaukee Country Club or Sand Valley or, Sand Valley or Whistling Straits?" Like, I think that you know it's very clearly on the same tier. I I would put it above uh, Whistling Straits. It's not on the ocean, but uh, in terms of just golf, it, it is uh, it is spectacular and a place that you need to see. So Lawsonia, you know, one of the things that's a shame with Langford Moreau is a lot of their designs haven't been well kept. You know, uh, a lot of them were destroyed. A lot of them, you know, they're really, they aren't the easiest to maintain. So in the 50s. There's a lot of local courses that Langford Moreau did too, right? They were, they were, you know, there's a lot of similarities with what Perry Maxwell did in his region. Langford Moreau did some similar stuff in the Midwest where they were kind of going around in the thirties in the depression building these small courses for towns. And a lot of those maybe haven't been 
super well maintained. Yeah, but like one of the cool things is like you can go see some of these courses that, and they're just like sitting there. They haven't yeah. been messed with because they they're a small town in Indiana or a small town in Wisconsin, and the you know the the golf course has never had money to mess it up. So you know they're just small greens, and you know the bunkers aren't you know filled in. But like you can go see these places. We talked about Kankakee Elks on the restoration podcast like i think like the thing anybody that goes to sees lawsonia you you realize god these guys were ex- extraordinarily great uh you know at at what they did and you know i think the thing that i i take away is like you play law you see lawsonia which you know i think we need to say is like it's one of the best kept but it's still got probably about 30 percent of the way to go of where it would be fully maxed out in terms of what it is. Um, that's how it, how good it is for you know it being kind of not fully restored. But it's a you play it for less than hundred bucks and it's uh, really busy, so it's hard to do restoration work. And Craig Haltom and his team has been doing some small stuff every year, and and it keeps getting better. So um, you know that's the that's the thing. Like you can there's a Langford Moreau Trail and what I've. I've got all the footage. We've wanted to do a video about it. Um, We've been talking for, about this for one three for three years. While. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, so, it, you know, you could play uh, five or six length from a rose from Indiana up through Illinois, up through Wisconsin, uh, for, you know, for about 225 bucks. Now, like, Lawsonia is going to be the crown jewel of that. So, Lawsonia, um, you know, one of the things, the ground's really great. Um, the back nine is what kind of makes everybody's jaw drop. Uh, you turn the corner on the 10th hole. The 10th hole is this long par three. And you, when you turn the corner, you just it opens up to this kind of like golf land. It's just a wide open scape. It's got a big roll through it, but there's just golf holes everywhere. It's one of the neatest kind of re- re- low-key reveals that doesn't include an ocean in the world of golf. The back nine's spectacular, but as good as it is, the front nine might be better. It kind of weaves around uh, a different side of the property, and uh, it has just incredible holes too. So, I it is a um, in terms of public golf, I think it's it's one of the ten to fifteen best public golf courses in America. So, the word that everybody uses when they go to Lasonia is bold boldness. It's become kind of a catchphrase. And so I, I wonder if there's anything else that you could say about Lawsonia that you think makes it special beyond just the boldness of the shaping. You know, that's something that anybody would notice. So what what else about the course is great? I think the thing when you really look at Langford Moreau's greens, like they're the bold, the big, like, so when people are saying bold, it's the big features. So you just see these greens that are pushed up. It's like the external uh, shaping on the greens often. Yeah. Like so the like banks around that they the greens, sit on. These bunkers. Yeah. yeah. They're huge. But what makes Langford Moreau greens are the internal contours, the elegance of these beautiful greens that they built that have these little waves and, and different slopes inside. Um, one of the things we do that I didn't mention at the start is we cut different cups uh, for morning and afternoon. And it's really fun at Lawsonia to set cups. So we do that. Uh, it's very intentional. We put pins in places that we want to. So you really understand the green because you see it one spot in the morning, you see it in a different spot in the afternoon, it's going to be wildly different. And you're going to play different tees too. So the golf course is really going to play completely different. But at, at Lasonia, like, you know, there a, a perfect example is like the 11th hole, which is a great par five. Um, you know, if, if that pins over on the right, you have this, this really bold, huge contour that you have to, uh, you don't want to go right of it. You know, it's a huge slope and you're dead if you're right of it. But if the pins over on the left, you think, oh, this is so much easier. But anything right, like it's so hard to keep it on. And there's just like little knobs in on the left side of the green that kind of like make these putts a little bit more challenging just than just your standard uh, downhiller. Mm. So how did you come upon Lasonia? Because for a while it was like a, a, well, a pretty well-kept secret that this was a great course. I mean, I think it was 2014 when Ron Force and Jim Nagel came in and uh, did some work on the course and, and maybe you know pushed it forward quite a bit from what it was. But did you see the course before that? Yeah, it was a course I had played as a kid. 
you know, oh, being wow. in the Midwest. Like I had gone up there with a buddy one time. Like it was on just like a Wisconsin, you know, we just went up there and played. Um, I'd seen that's how I had seen Eagle Springs that way too, which is another really neat course that's like an hour and a half away. Um, this is a nine holer. And we've written like, about that one on our website. Mm-hmm. So and, and also done a podcast episode about it. And when we when we started, you know, when I started the fried egg, it was just a place that I knew I needed to get to um, and do something. And, you know, it was something somewhere that hadn't nobody had ever shot it with a drone, which I think like shows some of the magnificence of it. And that's, I think, where like the the widespread like you show pictures of the place and it's just you, you people look at it. and It's like I need to go see that place. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, it was just a place that I'd seen as a kid and, and knew I needed to get back um, and, and do something on it. And uh, and the same goes for like Eagle Springs, too. Do you remember being stunned by it when you saw it, you know, through your you know adult eyes? Right. You'd seen it as a kid. Do you yeah, remember going it, back that was as before an adult? The, they had taken down all the trees um, on the back nine and, and you know, the the front nine's spectacular i think the more i play it the more i like the front nine but the back nine is just it's just such an unbelievable it what's really uh, one of my favorite parts of the event is when i make the turn back there and you see all the people out there because it's just you see it's like a very we talk about like expansive properties that are very intimate and that's what that is like you're always close to people you see people you can talk to them and and everything and there's just greens gathered close to it like you know you have the 10th green the uh 13th green and the 14th green all sit really close proximity on this ridge but then also you have the 11th and uh 15th tee there as well uh it's just it's a really special place and i think on the you know uh we had done a trip to sand valley and we'd hit it on the way back from sand valley um and uh it was a it, immediately I knew I needed to host people. That was like, that's always the place that I take people to. Um, if they, if they're coming, if they're in Chicago and have a day and they say, I've got a day to go play golf. Like that's the place I take them to. And it's a three hour drive, but it's so worth it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a reliable one where people play it for the first time and, and they're like, wow, you know, <laughs> that, yeah, it's that like was, you got to see Lawsonia. Like whether like, whether you're a public golfer or a private golfer, like Lawsonia, if it was in Chicago, would be right there with Chicago Golf Shore Acres and uh, Old Elm as the best course in Chicago. Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I always dream about like it, this is the thing. It's like this is where affordable public golf, like, is a. It's just a really interesting question. Is like, would it be better if it was fully restored and two hundred fifty dollars a person, or is hmm. it better? 70% of what it could be and $100 per person. Yeah, I mean, I guess the idealist in me says that you don't have to necessarily have that trade-off, right? You could yeah. you could have but, the well, fully it's, restored it's thing. It's hard. It's hard because like you have to kind of shut down and yeah, lose yeah, revenue. You to, you it's like you don't have dues, you don't have the dues paying. It's just it's hard, it's a harder proposition and then you could do it the the way they've been doing it is just small little things every year. Yeah, well, I, I think that that's the thing to highlight, though, is that they have done work on the course mm-hmm. to make it better and have made it substantially better and have still maintained in a, a pretty affordable rate. I mean, for a getaway place where you can where you can kind of get away from the city, go play a day of golf, this is an affordable option for that area, and and they've made the course better in the past ten years. You know, we we run into these discussions all the time. Recently, we had a discussion with uh, some folks from Cleveland about Sleepy Hollow and Manakiki there. These are really, really good municipal courses that could be a lot better if they just did a little bit. And the concern that we heard, well, first of all, a lot of Clevelanders were saying, yeah, these courses could use some work. There were some, though, who were saying, we can't do this. You know, we, we've got to maintain uh, affordability at these facilities. They're really good right now. Let's just leave them alone. No, you can do little things each year that make the golf course better. You don't have to shut down necessarily. You don't have to spend millions and millions of dollars. But th- there are some simple things that just make all the difference in the world. And I think that Lasonia is an example of that. Yeah. I mean, it's... uh. 
it's wonderful. Every year they do a little extra, a little something new. And uh, it's, you know, one of my favorite places to go every year. All right. So uh, let's get to some discussions of the other courses where signups are opening. So I've actually checked in with Will Knights. We, we should give a shout out to Will Knights because he is a major force behind making these events run smoothly. He does a ton of work behind the scenes. And uh, so so thank you, Will. I just asked him on Slack, like, when are we opening signups for Dornick Hills? And he says uh, February 7th. So that one is not among the signups that are opening on January 3rd. So uh, coming up here for the rest of the episode, we have a clip of Troy Miller talking about Charleston Muni. And Troy Miller is the Charleston-based architect who did the recent work on Charleston Muni, kind of Rainer-inspired shaping and whole concepts. And uh, he tells the story of that. And then we have a clip of me and you, Andy, talking about Soul Park. These were both episodes that we released earlier this year. You might might have caught them at the time. And uh, so that's what's coming up for the rest of this episode. So really the idea at Charleston Municipal was being a 1929 golf course, being built at the same time as Yeamans Hall and the Country Club, and being able to see, if you squint it a little bit, you could see some of those classic features of a Rainer design. And so it really kind of fell to to the bottom line of saying, let's let's really enhance this and give it an experience that the general public just doesn't have otherwise when it comes to this style of architecture. And so... It, it was something that I felt like if we did, and we did it right, and we really enhanced the features that you would see on a Rain or McDonald golf course, it would bring people that were visiting the city to experience golf in the city. And we're talking five minutes from downtown Charleston. And so this does really open up that opportunity. And what that does even more so is it allows the, the general public of the locals to continue to have a municipal golf course that they can be very proud of, that they can p- play for a very low rate and be subsidized by guest play at a slightly higher rate, which is still below market for a public daily fee in Charleston. And that that subsidy should allow the golf course to stay in the kind of shape it needs to stay in and should allow for it to uh, continue to really get enhanced. Yeah, it, with with your project, I think obviously so many people go to their local muni, um, whether, you know, so many in urban areas and they dream about the ability to be able to reimagine the golf course and update it and give it put a little you know tlc into it talk about the process of going through that and and getting it through the city where did it start how did how did it come about and and how did it get to where it is today with the finished product sure yeah so one of the things that it definitely takes is is a lot of passion from the people involved from the people in leadership and dating back to really 2015 was the first conversation that I had with the mayor who basically said, hey, I want to do something about Charleston Muni. And I said, okay, well, l- let me take a look at this. And I went at that point and started drawing conceptual plans and came back not only with a conceptual plan, but also a pro forma as to why it made sense for the city and how it was going to create a return for the city. And so at that point, we came back and decided to go ahead and put together a 501c3, the Friends of the Muni, that would be part of that charitable arm that would gain us some of that fundraising arm. So the way that the project was originally intended was to basically have two-thirds of the money come from the city and a third of the money come privately raised. And we've pretty much achieved that throughout the course of the last few years. The funding mechanism took several years because it had to go through a bond referendum that was part of another recreation bond. And then the process itself is heavily scrutinized because it's a city project that has to go through city capital projects. And so um, the process is not that of a typical private um, development. And so it does take some effort and it takes some time. But I think if you get the right people involved, and really it's about the passion, and there were so many people in Charleston that just loved that place. And my family history dates back to the 30s there. My grandfather caddied there. My father's first job in golf was there in, in the late 60s, his first job as a professional. And so there were so many people along the way that just said, we care deeply about it. How can we help? How can we make this happen? And it wasn't just monetarily, but it was also some political pressure um, that really got the project going. With, with regards to the 
pro forma, creating, you know, showing the value. Because this, I think, this is where so many people like. How do you, how did you go about presenting the case that hey, if we do this, you know, this is going to go from something that loses money for the city to something that's going to be something that brings in revenue for mm-hmm. the city. Yeah, and the biggest thing there is really looking at what is the market rate for a non-resident to come play golf. And at the top, top end of that, when it comes to municipal golf courses, you've got places like Torrey Pines and Bethpage Black. And while we're never trying to achieve those levels, what it showed us was, hey, we've got market rate to come play golf as a, as a visitor to Charleston we've got a lot of room for growth there. And so that was really the biggest change in the revenue line of being able to say, hey, we, we can go achieve 10,000 rounds. We do 60,000 rounds a year on, on Muni. And so if 10,000 of those were out of town play at a slightly higher rate, all of a sudden that's going to subsidize this thing, allow us to spend the money we need to from a maintenance perspective to keep it up and not create any kind of problems in terms of, of accessibility for all of the local residents. And I think this is where this project's a little bit different than a lot of projects. You see munis go down this road where they put money into their golf course, but oftentimes it's money where they're putting a lot of money in, but they aren't getting a drastically different product from what they had. How did you play the architecture into this? And and I imagine, you know, just thinking common sensely, it uh, that had a lot to do to say this is how we attract money. Yes. You know, how we attract out-of-town money is with this, right? Yes, absolutely. I think that the whole idea, and, and we've talked a lot, Charleston is a very historic town, and we've got a role to play in the history of uh, the history of America and the history of golf and the history of the Golden Age and Rainer McDonald-style architecture. What Rainer did in this town, you know, is, is such a great great example of his work and exactly how and and it's why it fits so well in the low country the ability to really enhance the features of the golf course on relatively flat property and so the idea when it was pitched was really about listen we're a historic town we're a sophisticated town we deserve a historic sophisticated golf course to call our own and so when we really dug down into it and started talking about the history of Rainer and the experience in the low country it was it was a it was an easy pitch to get people behind the idea of bringing these template holes to the table and really trying to create that experience for the public daily fee player. Yeah, and I think obviously they're getting a drastically different experience than what they had. Talk about how much of the how much new stuff is out there. What are the biggest um, say defining characteristics of Muni today versus what was. Yeah, sure. So the greens themselves were all completely rebuilt and are roughly about 50% bigger, 50 to 60% bigger than they were before. Much bolder contouring. And essentially, and like I said, because that golf course was built in the 20s and we had that you know, we had that influence. It wasn't a rainer, as many people might have said over the course of the years. But in 1929, a lot of the same laborers that built yes. the country club and built Yeamans Hall were going there. And these were the only two examples of golf in Charleston. So, you know, they'd go across town, take a look and say, OK, let's go build that. And it was a bad game of telephone is what it became. But you still got a lot of the same features. And so there was a lot of those big rectangular pads that were there that we were able to take these, you know, satellite dish greens that had just atrophied over the years and expand them back out into those corners and then accelerate just by sharpening the edges a little bit, elevating really no more than six inches to a foot in most green complexes, but creating some bolder contours. And one of the great things about working on a municipal golf course where you know that the limits are never going to be pushed in terms of green speed was the freedom of being able to create some bold contouring in the greens. Um, I can tell you, you know, opening day, those greens were running nine and a half and I was listening to people walk off that golf course saying they can't keep these greens at 12 like this. It's just going to be too much. And so it's it's really good to create some perceived green speed rather than actual green speed because it takes a lot of pressure off of your maintenance. Um, you know, in terms of the the architecture and 
Um, I lost my train of thought, Andy. Tell me what we what what was your question? I can't even remember. I it, can't either. I, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> I don't I don't even remember. But uh, you know, it, what you know. So the, let's talk, yeah, talked about the defining features. The defining but, features. So so let me say first. So there's there's 12 template holes out there. There's 11 at the Country Club of Charleston, and there's 13 at Yeamans Hall. And of those templates, I think the ones that will stand out the most to people and where the biggest physical change to the property came was the corner of the golf course that's 11, 12, 13, and 14. At that point, you kind of leave kind of the Parkland style of the golf course cross the road and head down towards the river into something that feels much more linksy. And all of a sudden now you've got, you're playing Redan, Cape, road and short in that order and so i think having that corner of the golf course with those very recognizable template holes and the views that were created simply by we we eliminated about two and a half acres of new growth forest that was kind of blocking the view of the river and in its place we dug a rather large lake that's in between golf holes primarily for stormwater and also to create generate the material to elevate some of these holes that were sitting in the floodplain. So there was a lot of functionality to what we did and then the architecture just became the fun part. Yeah, and obviously talk about the functionality. I think I visited uh, it was probably a perfect day to visit because I I saw, you know, all of all of the existing courses, the original courses issues and I think that's Beyond, you know, the increase in design, talk about just the functional design things that you did to make it a better golf course day in, day out. Sure. So drainage, obviously, being in the low country and being at a very low elevation as Muni is, you know, the biggest thing that, that we did was create better drainage and elevated some of those holes that were along the flood, in the floodplain, along the river. Some holes were elevated as much as five to seven feet from where they were before. Others just six to 12 inches is all it really took. But you mentioned, you know, you came on a day when we had a king tide, which is basically a seven and a half or eight foot tide. And I can remember being out there days and watching the tide come in across the 15th fairway and literally reach the far end of the fairway and just thinking, my God, how are we going to do this? And the way we were able to do it was actually by creating, digging out a pond, creating a better dike system that had been there and just elevating that to kind of combat what is these rising tide levels that we're seeing in the low country. And all of a sudden now what we have is a firm and fast golf course that should stay that way, that's got the appropriate drainage. And, and a big thing in Charleston too, is we talk about living with water because you ain't gonna get rid of it. We're, we're at sea level and it's not going anywhere. And so the biggest part of it was moving the water out of the areas of play, getting it off to the edges, into ditches, into new ponds, things that didn't come into play and didn't become more penal in terms of the design and the way the golf course plays, but functionality-wise provide a place for the water to get off to so that you can keep those fairways and those center lines firm. Yeah. I think anybody that's worked or has intimate knowledge about, you know, working at a, a, a municipal project or just any project in general, what were some of the biggest challenges of the project over the course of the of the year and a half? You know, I think that um, certainly working in a municipal setting, in a government setting, there, there's always uh, there's always a, a maybe not the sense of urgency that you know that you need to have as a golf course builder um, and as a golf course architect knowing hey that the clock's ticking we got to grow in to hit I, I can't wait for your seventh person to sign off on this so that I can get pipe in the ground so that I can plant grass trying to educate people on that perspective and kind of with that that mentality is is a tough thing um, and so I think that's part of the reason why a lot of these municipal projects don't get done in this kind of unique manner where it truly was a city-led project. I think the vast majority of what we've seen with these municipal projects around the country recently have been the takeovers, where you get a foundation that comes in and says, hey, we're gonna take it, we're just gonna lease it from you, you guys are completely hands off. And honestly, I, I'm kind of proud of the fact that that's not one of these. I think that the fact that the city is going to still run it, that it is still the city's wholly and 100%, and, and it's something for them to be proud of. Um, we have got a great park system in the city of Charleston, and this should be the crowning jewel of that. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite pleased that we didn't have to go to the level of privatizing to get action. Do you think also with that there's a, an enhanced sense of pride not just with you know the city as a whole the, all the way down through the maintenance team that worked on the project like 
do you think that is going to lead to where we maybe see less atrophy you know on the golf course in the future you know what that sad tale that so many municipalities see is where green shrink fairway shrink do you think because you know the city went through it with you and your team that you'll see a longer lasting product than I, typically i sure hope so i think that there's so many people who care deeply about it and a lot of those people are the people who are working there um, and that have been there for decades in some cases and so i really do think that'll be the case in the community involvement on this project as well i mean we had volunteer days we had volunteers planting the landscaping on that on a beautiful november day and to hear guys now going out there and playing and say hey i i I planted that dogwood. You know, I think that there is a sense of pride that comes with it that I hope will translate into better course care, that will translate into long-term conditioning, and, and a sense of pride that I hope everybody in Charleston can have in it. And um, I guess, you know, the, the way we should start is, is just at the beginning with the boomerang with Soul Park Golf Course. We haven't talked about Soul Park on the podcast yet, I don't think, right? It's such a wonderful place. I Yeah. I had like all this anxiety. You know, you see a place one time and you've been there so many times. You, you grew up playing there, but you see a place and I had the same feeling about Lawsonia you know, before we hosted the steam shovel is like, you get this anxiety. It's like, well, I really love the place, but like, is everybody else really going to love the place? You know, when you're, yeah. when you hosted an event and, uh, you get, I got back there immediately. I was like, oh yeah, this place is so good. Um, it, it is such a fun place. It's it just unbelievable setting there in Ojai, California in the mountains. I, uh, I don't want to tell too many people about Ojai because, you know, I, I want to be a future resident of Ojai, so I don't need everybody driving up uh, real estate prices there. But uh, I'm pretty sure the real estate prices have already gotten out of control there. Yeah. But uh, Soul Park is so cool. I, you've, you have much more experience with it than me. You, you grew up in the right. general area. You played the golf course before Gil Hans re renovated it in uh, the early 2000s. Tell us a little bit about the transformation. Yeah, sure. So Soul Park was built in 1962 by William F. Bell, right? So, you know, uh, Southern California Golf Course Architecture 101 is distinguishing between the two bells. Yeah, what's right? F stand for? Do you know what the F stands I don't, for? I don't actually even know. Maybe Francis? Probably Francis. I, I really have no idea. Maybe Frederick. But William F. Bell is the son of William P. Bell. William P. Bell is often referred to as Billy Bell Sr., and Billy Bell Sr. worked with George Thomas on a number of really well-known Southern California golf courses. In fact, the George Thomas Southern California golf courses that you've heard of, Riviera, LACC North, Billy Bell, William P. Bell, worked on those as well and was kind of the master bunker shaper. I also believe that Billy Bell, William P. Bell, was a integral in A.W. Tillinghast's design of San Francisco Golf Club. So another place with that is lauded for their bunkers. And, and if you have experience at Billy Bell Designs in Southern California, you go to San Francisco and you're like, hey, man, this, this, these don't look like Tillinghast bunkers. These, these look like, you know, sort of classic California Billy Bell bunkers. In any case, you know, Billy Bell is a really well-regarded regional architect. William F. Bell is his son. And, you know, to be honest, you know, I've played a lot of William F. Bell courses. They're all over Southern California. Not all of them are super remarkable. I, I think he was a good router of golf courses, but I'm, I'm not going to make any great claims about his abilities as a strategic architect. But in any case, he, he designed Soul Park Golf Course as a municipal course for Ventura County in Ojai, California in 1962. And that was the first version of the course that I played. I played it for the first time in the 90s. My dad and I played it a bunch. Even then, I, I thought this was a pretty special place just because of its location, a beautiful valley in Ojai. And in the mornings and evenings, there's just really an indescribable kind of peaceful loveliness to being in that valley. Well, in any case, Soul Park got ravaged by a flood 
in 2005. Like much of the Central Coast, it really got nailed by this flood. Significant parts of the golf course were destroyed. It was in limbo for a little bit. It, there was some doubt as to whether the course would survive, but the right kind of manager of a renovation came along and Craig Price, who had he been doing- He was also Rustic Canyon, yeah. Yeah. You know, he decided to sort of take over the lease for a time and he headed up the renovation. And who did he call but Gil Hansen, Jim Wagner, who, who had designed uh, Rustic Canyon alongside Jeff Shackelford a, a few years before. And Gil Hansen, Jim Wagner were well known as good architects at the time, but they, they didn't have nearly the stature that they have now. Right. This is pre Olympic course, pre a lot of the big name restoration work that, you know, now they're you know known for as much, if not more than their original designs, which they have a, a number of outstanding original designs. Yeah. So so they came in and they did a renovation of Seoul Park, uh, really more or less kept the same routing, but in every other sense, transformed the course. And they did their work for about three point two million dollars. <laughs> So that's an important number to keep in mind for discussion later in this podcast about another <laughs> we're, course. We're going we're gonna to quote some higher numbers for Tory Pines. But, you know, even after that renovation, it struggled for a while. You know, it had a series of managers who maybe didn't prioritize the golf course. But in 2017, Keith Brown came in, took over the lease of the golf course. And really, ever since then, Soul Park has been ascending. And uh, visiting the course now during our event and seeing the club, the, the members of the club, many of whom were at our event, how much they love the place, how good of a time they have there. The culture of that course is so lively now, and it's just wonderful to see. I think it starts with the staff, too. And, and I think that's one of the things is like it's such a welcoming, open place where you know, they have all types of golfers. You can bring your dog out there. They're dog friendly. And really, it's such a, a diversion from what I guess you could kind of put this in the municipal golf bu uh, buckets, but it's a lease. Keith Brown manages it on a lease from the city. Right. From the county. From the county. Um, so it's, you know, quasi-municipal golf, but like it's such a diversion from what you see at so many other municipal facilities that are very unwelcoming <laughs> like you try and bring your dog out there or you try and you know they they just look for ways to turn golfers away almost and you know that's really most of the municipal golf around me is that way it's just unbelievable how hard some places make it for you to go out and enjoy the day and enjoy the golf course and and i think that's the thing that they've done so well is they make it so easy for people to enjoy their time there Right. Yeah. And, and that's something that's been very intentional on the part of Keith Brown. When he came in there, the vibe of the course was more like, here are a set of rules. Make sure you follow these rules. There are signs up everywhere that said, you know, you got to dress a certain way. Don't go here. Don't go there. And Keith was really, you know, he, he knew what he was doing in, in stripping a lot of that away. And, and he says, like, I don't care if you come out and play in flip flops. I don't care. Well, the biggest the biggest evidence is how the people that play the golf course has changed, and how yeah they have a a large contingent of people that drive an hour and a half from Los Angeles up there to play golf. Like it's a it's regularly. a younger crowd too. Yeah, right. That, that for for decades that course has been dominated by the senior men's club, and you know no shade on the senior men's club, but that has been shaken up recently, and there is a younger crowd out there right now. And I think this is, it's just a, beyond just the golf course, like, and we haven't even talked about the design of the course and what that's done. This is just strictly a culture thing and a attitude towards providing a welcoming atmosphere that's done so much of the legwork on this. And, and that's where, you know, so many facilities need to look at themselves in the mirror and say, is golf the issue or are we the issue? And I think this is a facility that proves like there's plenty of golfers in, you know, they're drawing from an hour and a half away. You know, there's plenty of golfers within your uh, most cases metro area that you can make this work if you provide a great place to hang out. That's really what it is, is like if I'm going to spend five hours somewhere that there, there aren't many places, public or private, that I'd rather spend five hours at than Soul Park with those mountains and just the general attitude at the golf course of being so laid back and welcoming.
and and the food and the drink and the way the manner in which it's provided you know you mentioned the staff earlier Keith has really hired some great people and they they contribute to the culture of the place as well. But there is a reason that people are driving an hour and a half to come up to this golf course. And it's not just because there's a cool social vibe there. It is because this is a fantastic golf course. Um, what were the things that kind of struck you on this second visit to the course that maybe you didn't notice the first time through? The thing, the greens are just so fantastic. The property in general, like what's amazing about it is the setting around the mountains. I don't think there's too much, you know, movement. There's no wild movement like you might see at, say, Lawsonia's got some great movement and great greens, but this place just has some really creative greens. Um, and just how how dynamic the holes are in the in the case of when you change the pin how much the ideal places to be shift, you know, you're able to put it over a bunker with a, with a hard slope away. And, you know, I myself hit it into a place where, you know, I'm looking at, it, it was the, the second hole. We had the pin kind of up front left. It's over a bunker with a very severe slope on the backside of the bunker and everything on the green running away. Of course I hit it just into the left rough off the tee. And I remembered I was sitting there with a wedge and thinking to myself, God, I don't know if I can get this close. I hit a great, great shot and I end up like 18 feet away. Yeah. And I was like, that that's about as probably close as I could get. But if I had taken on the bunkers, gone up the right, I would have had a chance to hit it really close because everything would have been working for me. And I think that's the probably the most memorable aspect of Soul Park is just how the greens allow it to be so dynamic day to day. You almost can't believe how wild some of these greens are oh yeah you just almost can't believe that these exist at a municipal course and and just the fact that they've survived since 2005 when there have been members of that course who have objected to certain elements of hansen wagner's renovation you know i'm just really grateful that those greens are still there it's you can set that golf course up so tough because of the greens and then you can also, because of the greens, you can set it up so easy. There's uh, there's great repelling pins and gathering pins on almost every green. Exactly. So yeah, that's that's Soul Park. I, I would say that like the the Soul Park story is not over yet. You know, I, I would like to see not too many changes to that golf course. Um, I'd like to see some of the elements that were there in 2005 uh, when Hanson Wagner redid the course to be brought back and uh you know there there are just a few subtleties that have been lost since then nothing major and and i'd really like to see not too many more trees added yeah um we we did see some new tree plantings out there and i I have to just say that my opinion is that it's fine in terms of trees as it is there are some beautiful specimen trees out there some beautiful you know distinctive southern california species the holes don't need to be framed any more than they currently are there doesn't need to be much tree removal but by the same token i don't think there needs to be any more tree addition you know there's much better views across the golf course now than there were in the 1990s and that's one of the great things about the current version of the course is that you can you can really see across several holes at a time and that's part of what makes being in that valley so inspiring more trees would limit that visibility across the whole corridors. And and I really hope that we we don't see too many more trees added there. The mountains are the star. You want to do everything to to showcase the Topatopa Mountains. It's such an unbelievable setting for a golf course. Yeah. Yeah, so we had a great event there. It was really fun. Talking about next year already. There'll be a second boomerang. So yeah. it's, uh, it was awesome. Thanks to everybody that came out. And uh, it, was, it was such a fun time. 